1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Sarah Perry Myers to the book to talk about her book. Uh, to the podcast, I'm sorry, to talk about her book. See, I'm so excited about the book already. I want to get straight into it. It is titled Earning Their Wings, The Wasps of World War II and the Fight for Veteran Recognition, published by UNC Press in 2023. The book, I think, does a whole bunch of things and kind of some different types of history put together in a really helpful way not just looking at kind of who are the wasps the women's air force service pilots how what was the program you know how did it operate what was it like to be in it but also what happened afterwards i think quite often we sort of assume oh the program ended and that was it but as this book details that's really not the end of the story so sarah thank you so much for coming onto to the podcast to tell us all about what happened thank you miranda i'm so excited to be here I'm very glad to have you. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Yes, I am an associate professor of history in central Pennsylvania here in the United States, and my work revolves around um, public history, oral history, and then also studies of gender and war. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I had learned about the WASP program and pursued writing my PhD dissertation on the program and the women themselves. But I just felt like there was so much more to say and explore with regards to why they were the only women's unit during World War II that, for the U.S., did not get veteran status. And I just, I wanted to pursue you know, looking into that story, but also looking at them situated in the historical context. Kind of like you said in your intro, I was hoping to tell this larger story um, for these women and kind of look at what
0: happens to them after the war ends. I I think that makes sense as a starting point and definitely an interesting topic. So thank you for giving us that foundation. Um, moving, I guess, to the beginning of the story, uh, I appreciated the context uh, for those of us unlike you who are not kind of embedded in this world to that you started us off not kind of with like what is the WASP program and when was it created but giving us a bit of a bigger picture so can you take us back to the early decades of flying and how did people think of this and how did people think of gender in this area was it kind of this amazing opportunity was it an amazing opportunity for everyone
1: I find this time period to be really fascinating because there are historians that have looked at how there's this, you know, phenomena of the modern girl around the world, like this modern woman that exists in different countries around the world. And for the U.S., there are these, uh, you know, women who are perceived in pop culture as like flappers and things like that. But I argue that the women who are pilots fit into this larger idea about like modern women and their values in American society. And how there are women who are pursuing opportunities for careers that are outside of traditionally accepted gender norms and ideals. So for the women who are flying in the U.S. Um, after the Wright brothers um, famous moment in U.S. history, there are women who are invested in learning how to fly or in at least, you know, having access to watching air shows where these pilots are performing, and then, you know, later in their lives pursuing flight, they view the air like literally like altitudes as this space of liberation and beauty and freedom for women. And the way that these women pilots describe it, which I find to just be fascinating is they say that you know, this is the future for women, that there are, you know, the sky and planes don't discriminate on the basis of like, who's flying the plane. And so they talk about how, you know, this is a career where women are on equal footing with men and have an equal opportunity for a career in aviation. But they also see it as liberation, because it allows women not just like freedom of movement and the enjoyment of the skies, which all pilots talk about, but also that there is this potential for a career opportunity. And, you know, there's historians like Joseph Korn who say that uh, air-minded pilots in this time period really thought that one day all Americans would own an airplane and that airplanes were the future instead of cars. And so these early women aviators were in that similar mindset where they thought that because you know women can fly just as well as men, that this could be a space um, for opportunity for women. And it's very much these early women pilots who either form the what becomes the WASP program, or they are inspiring women who want to learn how to fly and then end up flying during World War II.
0: So, That, to be honest, reading it was a much more optimistic picture (laughs) of flying than I had maybe expected. Um, And so obviously, kind of something happened between then and my assumptions about the period that we have now. Uh, And that kind of last bit of your answer, in some ways, I think, sort of elides almost, or it would be easy to make it sound like this attitude or expectation we have now kind of comes more comes later on than World War II? Cause the way you phrased it, it sounded like kind of a straightforward thing, like inspired and then learn and then oh, fly in World War II, great. Okay, but hang on a second. To what extent were the opportunities to fly in an organized military government, US-sponsored way? To what extent did the US government Also think that the skies were equal for men and women, and therefore both should be recruited for flying.
1: Yes, I love this question because this is where it gets nuanced and complicated, and sometimes contradictory. So, in these early decades of flights, when women have these perceptions of their, you know, potential piloting careers and opportunities for future women to come behind them, there are men in the same time period who are in. Um u s. military positions or in the government who who don't see aviation or flight the same way that these women pilots do. And so when you think about World War one, aviation is not a large part of the larger strategy of the war for the American military. And so there are some pilots who fly in World War One, but it's not as um, significant, um, you know, in terms of the war for World War Two and things like that. And so the U.S. military actually does not allow women to fly during World War One in the U.S., and there's a small number of men that do fly. And so, you know, even though women view this as the future, there there is... You know some questioning in that moment of the you know late 1910s through the 1920s of just how much is this really a space of equality for women? Um, but when you get into the 1930s during the Great Depression, there is a New Deal government program where um, FDR tells the American public that. You know, I'm announcing this like pilot program. It's, it was called the Civilian Pilot Training Program. It started in 1939 when the war starts in Europe. And he says that there will be one woman trained for every 10 men in pilot training. So the thought was eventually the U.S. is probably going to go to war. So we should start training pilots now. Uh, women were not expected to serve in combat, but they were included because of the first lady Eleanor Roosevelt's kind of campaigning for the ways that women could potentially be used on the home front. And so there was this opportunity or this moment where instead of needing to have a lot of money or having flexibility of lifestyle to be able to learn how to fly, because it was really expensive then, it's still expensive now, there was this opportunity where you could get it for free through the U.S. government um, if you were accepted to the program. And so you have large numbers of men and women who are learning how to fly, including men and women of color as well, which was a new opportunity in the U.S. And so this program opened up the chance for more people to become pilots, but also set up this idea in people's minds of the potential of using women in more although it wasn't until 1942 that that idea was taken seriously by the U.S. Army Air Force. Um, The program still existed from 1939 through 1944. So you still have um, men and women who are trained like up until World War II starting. And then in 1941 in December, they switch over and just train men. But the US Army Air Force then decides to use women in 1942. And so, at least for a couple of years during the war, there is this expectation by, you know, from women pilots but also from Air Force officials that we are going to use women in this military career like capacity.
0: So, who are these women then? that are signing up for this, um, especially, as you said, as it doesn't have the same financial barriers before the existence of the program, who were the women signing up um, to become these pilots? Why were they doing it? Um, And to what extent were their families reacting?
1: I I love learning about people's motivations for either joining the military or for selecting certain professions. And so for these women in particular, they have the same motivations that you see in uh, men who are pilots, um, but also men who are serving in other um, types of service. And that includes everything from patriotism and a desire to like serve their country or even some of them talk about avenging men's death and they want to serve in this specific way. But for pilots in particular, they have this added love of flying that even if they you know have these patriotic motivations or nationalistic motivations they also want to use like flying specifically to serve their country then you also have men and women pilots who are just simply excited by the idea of adventure and having a career in aviation and are pursuing military service for those specific ways and so you have a wide range of women's motivations to eventually, like, apply and join this WASP program. The families of these women react in different ways. I noticed a trend in oral history interviews and letters from older generations of families, um, particularly older generations of women. So when you think about the WASP, their grandmas, um, sometimes aunts and moms, were opposed to them joining the military and sometimes even opposed to them learning how to fly. Um, At the same time, you also do have some like older male family members, but a lot of the women I noticed talked about um, their female family members who are of older generations. There are stories like one wasp um, talked about how, you know, her mom disapproved of her flying and of joining the military. And so she got her dad's like permission because at that time, if you were under the age of 21, you needed a adult like in your family's permission. And so she got her dad to sign her papers to join the WASP. Um, But these ideas are revolving around gendered ideals and norms of the time. Um, Because we're talking about the WASP program is a program that is for women who are either white or can pass as white. And so for women who are in this specific category in American society, the ideal that's given is, you know, you will be involved in some way in a form of service, whether that be, you know, for the military or just the war effort broadly that's seen as traditional. So communications work or nursing, um, things like that, or even, you know, staying at home and gardening, even, you know, doing things like Rose the Riveter stretched Americans' uh, minds and ideas about what possibilities women could do with regards to work. And so there's going to be a media response to American fears. And the same thing existed for women with flight, but also in the military. There were all sorts of rumors during World War II about women's involvement in the military and how... You know, there are these fears that women are either um, it's going to have an impact on their sexuality because the ideal or norm like standard was that you should be heterosexual. So there are fears that if you join the military, that that would shift in some way. Um, There are also fears that women were servicing men like sexually, like serving as prostitutes. And that rumor was very widespread in the media about the Women's Army Corps in particular, And so for the WASP, they're confronting people's, like, fears about military service, but also they are not performing work that's considered to be traditional for women in any way. So by flying and learning, like, all of the classes involved with that, they're performing work that's considered to be, like, non-traditional by the American public.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to hear kind of the range of um, reactions as well as the range of motivations. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, In terms of the kind of non-traditional, there's obviously the elements you've already mentioned in terms of kind of what the work is and where women are and what they're doing. If we think of it institutionally, you also talk about how the program itself, the WASP program, is also experimental and non-traditional in the context of kind of how the military operates. So can you tell us a bit about how it's experimental as a program and what impact this had on how it was run and how people perceived it?
1: Yes. So wartime flying especially with new technologies coming out, new types of planes being developed, was very much a strength-based job when you were a pilot. So you needed um, upper body strength to fly these aircraft. The heavier the aircraft, um, the more upper body strength required. And the Army Air Force, like the officials in the Army Air Force were concerned that women did not have like upper body strength to fly these advanced aircraft. There were also stereotypes about women's intellectual abilities and whether or not they could, you know, learn how to navigate these planes, learn how, you know, to do everything like involved with flying military planes, but also just like from a general perspective, they had questions about women's um, decision making on the, fl- you know, on the fly and things like that. But then, interestingly, they had concerns about women's bodies beyond strength, in that they were concerned about their reproductive organs. So this was actually this is a historic argument that was used for women who rode bicycles, who drove cars. Um, it was it's been an argument used for women in like space flight. And that is that women's reproductive organs in some way will be um, damaged or will their uteruses will flip, you know, as they're like in certain altitudes or simply that when they're on their menstrual cycles, that they won't be able to make rational decisions with these like government planes and, you know, taxpayer money. And there's just all of these like stereotypes that they're like confronted with. And so when the army air force creates the program and is interested in using women in this specific way, they say, we're gonna, this is an experiment because there are all these different questions in our minds about women and their capabilities as pilots. And while sure they've flown smaller aircraft, what happens when they're flying large aircraft at higher altitudes, et cetera? Um, similar arguments were made about the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, these were black segregated units of pilots in the Army Air Force. And the arguments used towards them also had to do with their intellectual abilities and their aptitude with making decisions, particularly like in combat and, and things like that. And so the WASP program itself was deemed an experiment until numbers of WASP went through training, which was the same as men minus combat, and were stationed to Air Force bases around the country. And as soon as... You know, in 1943, the Army Air Force um, recognized that there are no differences between male and female, like pilot, like flight statistics. And in fact, in some instances, the WASP had higher scores. Um, And so, because there's no differences, we no longer need to consider them an experiment. And we're now going to, you know, officially say that this is our women's uh, unit for the Army Air Force during the war. And so it's just interesting to see like the discussions that are being had about these women and their bodies over time. And I mean, just for the record for listeners, the menstrual cycles of women had no impact on their ability to fly. And in most cases, the WASP actually refused to report when they were on their menstrual cycles, because the Army Air Force had a policy that said that you needed to be grounded, meaning that you couldn't fly during that time of the month. And so women, because they wanted to continue to fly or continue their training, would just not report it to the medical officers on base, wherever they were training or stationed. And the medical officers finally turned to the Army Air Force and were like, please, Stop all of this! Like we don't want to report this anymore. We don't want to have these discussions with the women. It's having absolutely no impact on their flying. And there are so many women, you know, this past month who have, in this one particular memo, and um, there's so many women this past month who have, not, you know, not reported their periods or, or claimed that they've missed their periods. That we should just like stop this all together. And so they scrap that policy as well and. Uh, women are allowed to fly at all times during the war.
0: I find this really interesting to kind of see and think about how this changed. And in some senses, it's like, wow, that changed really fast. But of course, in the context of the war and everything was changing really fast, um, it makes a lot of sense in that lens. But I want to ask more about um, training, if we if we can. And I'll, I'll ask a bit more about the military sort of status side in a moment. But you mentioned training and that the numbers um, – kind of in some ways forced these changes, the the prejudices to make changes. So can you tell us more about what that training was? So Army
1: Air Force training during World War II involved um, ground school classes, which is where you learn things like um, navigation and physics, and you even do things like take apart engines and have to put them back together, Um, just practical like classroom-based education. There were also these devices that were called link trainers. Um, They were little like contraptions that look like fake mini airplanes that were um, on the ground. And what you would have to do is learn to fly according to instruments, which just means that if you are Flying an actual airplane, flying instruments means that you're only paying attention to your instrument panel because for whatever reason, looking outside the plane isn't helpful. That might be because you're in a storm or there's clouds or flak or whatever, and so you need to be able to fly your plane without like sight and so these link trainers on the ground would also help you practice those skills and so the wasp trainee or the you know male pilot trainees would sit inside these little bo- enclosed boxes and their instructors would give them you know instructions for what to do inside the box but then you also had flight school which is learning how to fly different types of aircraft. So they, they rotated you through three different levels of flight training. So you went from primary to basic to advanced aircraft, and you also had to practice uh, cross-country flights so that they could make sure that you knew how to use maps and navigate yourself and fly according to instruments. And so there were all these different types. The only thing that distinguished male versus female pilot training was um, combat maneuvers in the air and discussion about um, flying in combat, because there was uh, no ideas about women. Like, I mean, there was no serious discussion about women flying in combat during World War II or serving in combat um, because of, again, gendered ideas about protection and who is better equipped to fight in that particular way in these gendered ideals. And so the training itself was very rigorous. It was meant to wash out pilots who weren't of the highest caliber because you wanted the... Like literal, like highest quality of student. Um, it's it's similar to today, when you think about military pilot training, you want someone who is like has the highest test scores, basically. And so there are women who regularly are you know just like male pilots um, regularly washing out of training because they didn't pass the latest test, whether in ground school or flight school, and. When they compared the Army Air Force compared rates between men and women, they found that the rates of washout from training were the same. So that lets you know just how like standardized this training was for pilots during the war.
0: Hmm. No, it it really does um, sound you know that the numbers speak for themselves and how similar they were. But then there's the difference in terms of what they actually do, right? Women not being not flying in combat, so. That raises, I mean, that's one of the reasons that raises this question, but there's some other ones as well. Were the WASPs actually in the military, or were they civilians that underwent military training? How exactly was this line drawn? It was very blurry.
1: So they, they uh, in this sort of um, standards that they're setting up, the Army Air Force decides, okay, we're going to have these women be situated uh, as military, because at this time in U.S. history, Congress is making decisions about whether or not units can become military if they've been civilians. So, for example, with women's incorporation into the military, you have the Women's Army Corps, um, women in the Navy, women in the Marines, Coast Guard, who have these bills that go before Congress, and Congress votes whether or not to grant them military status. And the WASP are the last bill to appear before Congress. And they're the only bill that Congress votes no not to pass and give them military status. But the Army Air Force doesn't know that, right? so they assume that Congress is eventually going to grant these women military status. So they go ahead and give them uh, military training. This means that they even do like just really small things like they're issued uh, military uniforms during training. They're wearing the same PT clothes, etc., um, that are military issue, but they're also issued dog tags. They take an oath to the United States and to the constitution um, to protect the country, even though they're not in combat. They are, Once they graduate training, given their wings, like there's a wing pinning ceremony, just like there are for other pilots who are men in the military, then they are given assignments. And in each of these roles, whether training or in assignments, they are required to follow army air force rules and regulations that are issued to all people in the army air force. And so when they're on Bases and assignments. They also have to request leave, just like men have to request leave. What's interesting about this is that other civilians who are in like a similar capacity. So there are some male civilian instructors and some female civilian instructors on uh, either at training sites or on military bases when male and female pilots are learning advanced training, like on the B-17 or the P-47, for example. And so these civilian instructors are, you know, they know military rules and regulations, but they aren't required to follow them and they don't have to ask for leave and they act as though they're civilian, whereas the WASP do not have that option. They have to wear their military uniforms anytime that a man would have to. And they have to follow all the same rules and regulations. There's actually even additional rules and regulations that are placed upon the WASP because there are concerns about their dating and their sexuality that, they, that the American public doesn't have for men in terms of fears or ideals about men and their sexuality and dating. So there's extra rules for the WASP. But then at the end of the WASP program, when Congress votes not to get them, grant them military status. They're also issued honorable discharge certificates, which is only given to you if you're military. So every single aspect of the program is organized as military because there's that assumption. And then also, interestingly, there are some WASP during the war who go to OCS, to officer candidate school. So they're get given officer training Because again, there's the assumption that once Congress passes a military bill, they will then be granted rank, right? And Mm -hmm. so despite all of this, Congress still votes not to give them military status. That has repercussions for you as a civilian serving in the military, whether you are injured during the war, um, because you have to use your civilian insurance for injuries, which some of the women talk about being incredibly confusing for insurance companies. Um, but also just like everybody knows when you like fight with insurance companies to get them to cover certain things, that became an issue for some of these WASP. But you also have WASPs who are dying during the course of this program. Um, they're dying because of the same reasons that other pilots are training. And that's just because of the nature of, of military flight. Some WASP die in training, Some die on um, military bases at assignments because of their planes or or other like pilot error or the weather and their rates of death in the U.S. are the same as male pilots who are in the U.S. Um, But as a civilian, if you die during the war, you don't have access to those military benefits that do things like pay for your funeral, um, you know, give benefits to your family. Uh, you don't get to have a military funeral or that recognition. You also, your families are not supposed to display a gold star in the window, which is the symbol that's used for uh, families who have lost a loved one in the war in military service. And so for a lot of these WASP who die, these 38, their families have to pay to ship their bodies home. Uh, In some cases, the director of the WASP program, Jackie Cochran, pays for that service and pays for the travel expenses of WASP to escort the woman's body home as a you know, sign of respect, um, as you would see in as a common military practice. And then after the war, when you think about the fact that they're civilians, they're, they don't have access to the GI Bill, like other male and female veterans do. So they don't have access to reduced loan rates, they don't have access to education through college, things like that. And so it actually has a lot of ramifications for the WASP um, during the war, but also in the post-war period as well, and sets limitations on them.
0: Hmm. The stakes of Congress saying no, then, are incredibly um, real, incredibly impactful, both, as you said, in the kind of immediate term, um, as well as the longer term. But with everything you've explained of kind of how much the WASPs were treated as military, it really seems like quite a surprise that the WASP bill um, was not approved. Why wasn't it?
1: It's so surprising because even when you look at the congressional records, there are top Army Air Force officials, including the commanding general um, Henry Arnold, who are saying to Congress in their testimony, "Please continue like this program. Please grant them military status." They've been trained for this uh, service and also we've organized them as military and also we've invested taxpayer dollars in this. So, you know, please vote yes for the bill. Right. And then you even have other um uh, officials who are in the government, like uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who also says to Congress, like, you know, listen to these Army Air Force officials, this is an investment of taxpayer money, these women are performing an invaluable service on the home front, but also they've been organized as military. And so what ends up happening is this is the last women's unit whose bill goes before Congress during the war. And in this moment, this is the summer of 1944, you have some things happening simultaneously within American society that are contributing to Congress's decision. I don't have time to get into like the whole extent of it. So if you really want a deep dive in this, I encourage you to read that like chapter of the book. But basically the civilian pilot training program, that New Deal government program, it was shut down. And the male civilian instructors who had been teaching in that program make the argument to Congress and to the media. There's a large um, media like campaign against the WASP when this civilian pilot training program shuts down because these male civilian instructors are now eligible for the draft. They don't want to be drafted. They want to stay on the home front. This is their words, not mine. Um, And they say, you know, we can fly. So you should give us military training and allow us to fly for the Army Air Force. These men, according to Army Air Force officials, most of them don't qualify for, for military service because of either their age or some physical factor about them because there were specific height and weight requirements. There were specific eyesight requirements, et cetera. And so, you know, there's that side of things, but army air force officials also say these male civilian instructors, like they haven't been trained in military flying. We've already paid and invested in these women. They're performing good work. Like we simply don't need those, the male civilian instructors who like, might happen to be like qualified for military flying which they argue is very few of them and so that's happening you also have a hollywood movie that comes out in theaters in 1944 it's called ladies courageous i saw the film in an archive once and it was one of the worst things i've ever seen Um, some of the wasp who saw it in In theaters, there were very few that saw it in theaters because they were too busy with their wartime assignments. But a few did, and they talked about how horrible they found it. This, the plot of this movie was that there are women who are flying for the U.S. Army Air Force during the war. They don't call them the Wasp, but that's. You know, in the public's mind, that's who the Wasp are, for those that know about the program. And so you see these women uh, flirting with men and getting into love triangles and crashing U.S. military planes because of their flirting or because they're getting distracted. And the movie does not show women pilots as professionals. And it's just an embarrassment in general, uh, an embarrassing like portrayal of military women pilots specifically. And Congress in the record, like these representatives are talking together and they say, Oh, did you see ladies courageous and, and reference the fact that these women aren't like professional, that they're just having a good time here on the home front. And it's very like demeaning and diminishing to the dangerous nature and dangerous and skilled nature of the work that the WASP are performing on the home front. And there's also lots of other media coverage of the WASP program that portrays them in a similar light. Um, A part of that media coverage is the fault of the Army Air Force in the sense that They wanted to censor or restrict the view that the public had of the WASP program. They were really concerned that if you show the WASP performing dangerous work, like one of the jobs that they did was one of the assignments was towing targets where men on the ground would practice anti-aircraft artillery and would shoot live ammunition at the targets as the WASP flew the same pattern in the air repeatedly. This was work that was also done by male pilots, but the Army Air Force was concerned, like if we show the public that women are doing these dangerous assignments, that's going to lead to them, you know, wanting to shut down this program, because again, there's all these ideals about protection and who's doing dangerous jobs during war. And also the WASP aren't doing anything that's considered to be traditional. So the Army Air Force is very concerned about the rumors that you know, units like the Women's Army Corps are getting. And so they decide, like, okay, we're going to really restrict what we let the media see these women doing. And so as a result, a lot of the focus of the media attention is just simply on them at leisure or writing letters home or things like that. And so all these factors combine, I argue, lead the program to but lead Congress to vote no to the program becoming military. Hmm.
0: Despite the sort of upper levels of military support and kind of what's happened until that point so very much a surprise and as you told us about earlier with with a lot of impacts to the wasps so what then kind of do they what, what's going through their mind sort of that the bill doesn't pass um, the war is now over what did they want to do after the wasp program ended after the war was over and to what extent were they able to actually do this
1: the WASP talk about being absolutely devastated by the program ending in December 1944 and the fact that they they no longer have access to flying these military planes, which are much larger, faster, fly at higher altitudes than civilian aircraft in general. And the WASP like as professionals love the opportunity to fly these different forms of aircraft, but also they talk about how they, a lot of them had wanted a career in aviation and saw the military as the way to do that. And so they're, they're literally like crushed and devastated that they no longer can fly for on the one hand. And then on the other hand, a lot of them talk about how they no longer can serve their country in this capacity. And so After the war, like in the decades after, at one moment, there is a uh, wasp who sends out this questionnaire to as many wasps as she can get the addresses of. And she says, like, you know, when the program shut down, like, how did you feel? Did you think that we were organized as military or, you know, did you join for other reasons? And kind of just like trying to get at what the women like what arguments the women had about their wartime service and like overwhelmingly the women say, like, I was devastated. I wanted to be able to fly after the war. I thought this was going to be my life, like career. And then it quickly got shut down because what happens is commercial aviation does not admit women until 1973 and as pilots. And Military aviation, after the WASP program is shut down in 1944, also doesn't admit women as pilots until 1973. So for the duration of what would be the WASP careers, they don't have access to military or commercial like flight. There are some WASPs who are able to get careers in aviation in roundabout ways. So some are flight instructors, some of them marry pilots. And then after the war, they combine finances and or combine finances with other families and purchase airplanes that they then fly like these civilian planes just for free, you know, for fun, sorry, for like a hobby. But then you also have some WASP who get jobs um, ferrying cargo planes. So this would be for just like um, their civilian companies who need pilots to ferry whatever the business's cargo is from one place to another. So there are some women who do that. There are also some women who have money and access to uh, air shows or air competitions like flights. So they will you know use their money to participate in those like activities again as like a hobby but unfortunately not like as a job or or not getting to be paid and so the majority of the wasp end up going into some life plan that just doesn't involve aviation at all even though that is not the choice that they wanted for themselves. It's the reality of what they're faced with because of the cost of aviation and the lack of opportunities for them in that like field.
0: And yet, as evidenced um, by the example of the survey being created and sent out, um, they don't forget that they were wasps. Um, they certainly don't forget kind of everyone else they went through the program with. And you talk about in the book that the wasps do actually achieve military status, if not in 1944, decades later in the 1970s. So, given the kind of gap between those two moments, why do you think that the wasps launched a campaign to kind of go back, you know, try again, I suppose? Why was it, why did that happen in the 1970s of all times? And why do you think it was successful the second time around? So the WASP will talk in
1: the years after the war, even starting in 1945 when the war ends. They have yearly reunions that they'll hold around the U.S. They're, uh, you know, some of the reunions they're they're similar to other veteran reunions where you meet together and reminisce about the war. And so you have some WASP who will go to these, some you know go some years and not others. But are are they're meeting regularly, like pretty much yearly. To just you know meet up, talk about their lives, and also reminisce about the war. And over the years, they they leave behind for us these newsletters from these reunions, and also photographs and other primary sources from these meetings. And in those sources, what you see is that they discuss like, you know, sure would be nice to have military benefits. Um, some of the WASP also say it really would be nice if you know, for my friend who was one of the 38, if her family could get some kind of recognition. And so there's early talk about wanting military status, but not a concentrated or organized effort. It's more conversational. And over time, you see that that kind of ebbs and flows. And then starting in the 1960s and then really into the 1970s, the WASP find congressional like representatives to take on their you know kind of like their their cause right their um goal of trying to get military status so you'll see every now and then a bill that doesn't end up appearing before congress but that's written on behalf of the wasp making this argument that they should get military status but then it kind of you know fades out and doesn't go anywhere It really becomes a concentrated effort, like full-scale campaign in the 1970s. The WASP get the help of two figures in the U.S. government and military spaces who have expertise in this area and a lot of connections that end up being very instrumental for them. Uh, One is... General Arnold of the Army Air Force during World War II, his son, uh, Colonel Bruce Arnold, is in these like military and government like spaces. And he tells the WASP that he will like help them like organize this campaign to try to get military status. And then they also garner the support of Senator Barry Goldwater, who in the U.S. was not supportive of women in expansive roles in the US military during the course of his career. So for example, he was opposed to women's entrance into the service academies and things like that. But Goldwater served alongside the Wasp in Delaware during the war. And what he says about this is that these women were clearly military. Like I literally served on the same base as them. We had the same assignments, same uniforms, et cetera. So it makes perfect sense for us to retroactively grant them military status. And he even goes so far as to say that he kind of uses the language of mili- of uh, women's liberation and saying that these women, because they didn't get military status in 1944, it, it was really because of these male chauvinists who were in Congress. And, you know, they just had different ideas about gender at the time and they just couldn't see like the significance of the wasp. And so we need to write this wrong, you know, and grant them st- military status. And so these men help the wasp, but really like this is a grassroots movement for the wasp in the sense that, you know, these are the days before email and the ability to quickly, you know, Google someone's address. These women are exchanging contact information with each other, trying to get word out to as many WASPs as possible. And they're also organizing um, petitions. So there's one WASP who shows up at a Star Wars premiere in LA and stands in line with all the people who are waiting in line for the movie and gets them to sign this petition for this bill to grant them military status. And they also garner the attention of different media sources and use the media and use uh, professional organizations like the Air Force Association or their local chapter of the American Legion or a local chapter of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, et cetera, to try to get as much support from as many different groups and media sources as possible. And so it's these efforts that end up making it successful. But in that congressional debate in the 1970s, it is a very heated debate. The national level of the VFW and the American Legion at the national level do not support the WASP, even though local chapters do. And in fact, they see themselves, uh, I argue, as stakeholders of the title veteran and don't want other groups to have access to this title. And some give testimony and say that the word veteran will never again mean the same thing that it means today if we give it to these women, trying to make all sorts of implications about the WASP and their military service. Whereas then you have others like the Air Force Association who are saying like, clearly these women were organized as military and they have their dog tags, et cetera. And so in Congress, it's a very heated debate about On the one hand, there's the argument that you're opening Pandora's box and everyone is going to want military status. And there's going to be all these bills before Congress if we grant the WASP military status. And then on the other hand, you have people who are saying, like, obviously, they were organized as military. This is a very unique situation. And therefore, you know, we should grant the military status. But also for those 38 women who died during the war, they should also be granted recognition. And we need to, like, do something about this. And they literally use the words, "right this wrong, to try to make an ethical argument about granting the
0: wasp this status. Hmm. Definitely a heated debate there. But it does pass, um, unlike the first time around. Uh, So is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the wasps kind of towards the end of the book? Um, Or should I ask you what you might be working on now that the book is done?
1: yeah, so it does pass, and the reason that I argue that it passes is in part because of the work that these wasp are doing to, you know, literally make copies of their military service records to present to Congress. It's just such a an extensive like effort that they put in and just hours and hours of time to try to prove their military service. And I think ultimately it's that work and investment that comes through when congressional representatives are making this vote again in the 1970s. And then it's signed into law by president Jimmy Carter in 1977. So it becomes official, which the WASP are very celebratory about and very excited about the opportunity to, you know, either take advantage of military benefits and military funerals or just for their their friends who died, um, and that recognition. So that, yeah, is the conclusion for that phase of the wasp story, and just their um, efforts. What mm-hmm. I'm working on now is I am looking at trauma and emotions and the sensory experience of flight for other pilots. So I'm picking up the story where the WASP kind of leave us in the sense that I'm going to look at the reintroduction of women into military flight in 1973 and later for some of the branches of the service and looking at the arguments that are made about these women and the like sensory experiences that they have with flight at high altitudes and in different types of aircraft, but also when you think about post-1973 flight um, through the early 21st century, you also now have women who experience um, trauma as a result of combat flying and the decisions that are made about women's like entrance into combat flying and things like that, like the arguments made about women's bodies and intellects. There's a lot of echoes from the WASP story. So I'm picking it up there. I'm currently working on a chapter on that topic that Uh will be in an edited collection with Uh two other historians um jason krauthamel and jordan pitt and i are editing an anthology of the costs the human costs of flight which will be with um there will be 15 of us like who write chapters on trauma and emotions and pilots in an international context so i'll be editing that along with them
0: Wonderful. That sounds like a fascinating project that very much is speaking to some of the same things this book has explored. So best of luck to you and your co-editors on that project. Um, And of course, for anyone interested in getting more into the Wasp story, uh, you can read the whole book and get all the details. (laughs) The book again is titled Earning Their Wings, The Wasps of World War II and the Fight for Veteran Recognition, published by UNC Press. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you to all of you who listened to this. I appreciate it and you can feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions.